These are the oldest stories online at oldeststories.net. The story over the last month has grown fairly complex, but it can be summarized fairly decently with the following. The Ur dynasty collapsed under the weight of the Amorites, and Isin rose to ascendancy for about 70 fairly peaceful years. Then came Gungunimal Larsa, who started conquering land, shattering the peace of the Isin period, and inspiring a generation of warlords to try their luck at murdering their neighbors. A handful of these new dynasties enjoyed modest success, mostly the Manana in the north, the Kazalu Marad in the west, and Babylon in the heart of the old Akkadian region. To the south, the game remained Isin and Larsa, with the successors of Gungunum making fits and starts towards hegemony. Now, it is the year 1865 BCE, or thereabouts. Within about two years, we have a new king in Isin and a new king in Larsa. In Babylon, Sumulael still has a few more decades to go, and he's going to live an incredibly long time. But the city of Babylon is now secure under his leadership, with the high walls finished and the god Marduk protecting the city. But these aren't the only players making their move at this time. 1865 is also the year that the city of Uruk in southern Sumer regains its independence, and only two years later, in the extreme north of the region, Eshnunna on the Diyala River has a king who is both calling himself a king and calling himself a god. If it is any consolation, Manana in the north, the Amorites who hold sometimes the city of Kish, will be mostly quiet for the next few decades, and Kazalu, last episode's punching bag, is going to get punched out pretty quickly. So as you can see, there are a lot of threads to weave again this week, but in this period there is a lot more of the few major powers beating up on minor powers, so we shouldn't need to juggle quite as many balls at once. Let's start back in Isin. Lipit Enlil died and was followed by Era Imiti, another king who is basically a big old nothing. He rules for only eight years and engages in a bit of conquest, but is largely unimportant. He retakes Nippur from Larsa, but loses it again shortly after. He takes Kasura again and destroys much of the city, then joins up with Sumu Abum in an attack on Kazalu. More on that when we return to the Babylonians. What is of interest for this otherwise unimpressive king, is that he is the last of his dynasty, which you may recall are the descendants of Erdnerza, the Sumerian usurper. That makes him, as far as I can tell, the last Sumerian king. But of course, I did say that about Ibi Sin a while back as well, only to discover that I was wrong, so there could be another further down the road. However, we're fast approaching Hammurabi and the old Babylonian Empire, and so there probably isn't time for any more ethnic Sumerians to make a glorious final stand for the culture which invented writing. In Era Emiti's eighth and final year, he's occupied with the expansion of a city wall, which he, without humility, is naming for himself. Over the course of things, he summons an oracle to do a general reading for good fortune. 
We will be talking fairly soon about oracles and the fact that the people in this age are relying on divination for absolutely everything. But I'm going to wait until we reach one of the kings with a big cache of surviving oracles to really get into it. In any case, the oracle cuts open a sheep and reads the entrails and notices that the king's fate is death. And soon. This is a worrying portent, but not one without precedent in history, and the kings and royal priests have, over the centuries, developed a little trick to escape this fate. The priest goes down into the servant quarters and selects, more or less at random, a gardener who goes by the name of Ikun P. Ishtar. He is brought to the throne room, and in a magnificent ceremony, Era Amiti gives this man the crown and mace of royal authority, and he is invested as king beneath the sight of gods. For a few days, he enjoys the wealth and splendor of the royal court that he has previously only seen from the bottom while awaiting his foretold doom. It seems he was fairly content despite the sword of Damocles hanging over his head, since on one hand, unimaginable luxury, but on the other hand, he's serving the will of the gods. This is very much a religious ritual, and most people really do seem to have been deeply religious on a level most modern people in the West have difficulty comprehending. Meanwhile, down in the servants' quarters, Era Emiti is doing his level best to live like a servant. He probably isn't doing any actual work, but he's dressed like a servant. He's living in a servant's room and eating servant food that he would never have tolerated under any other circumstance. And as he gulps down his thick porridge, a lump of hot mush goes down the wrong pipe and he chokes to death on oatmeal before anyone comes by to notice that he's in distress. With the ex-king's death discovered, the royal court went up to the temporary king Ikun P. Ishtar and told him that he wasn't needed anymore, since the real king's fate had caught up to him and it was time to pass the throne on to his successor. But Ikun P. Ishtar said no. He had no reason to give up the throne, and none of the priests or bureaucrats had any way to make him leave. He'd been properly invested as king under the sight of gods and rituals of men, and if they had made him anything less than a full, real king, then the whole exercise was pointless. These were, after all, very legalistic people, and there was in Bronze Age Mesopotamia no legal way to remove a king. It would never been done without violence before. And so, Ikun P. Ishtar ruled the way you would expect an illiterate peasant who had expected to die only recently to rule. That is to say, badly. At the same time, the governor for the city of Nippur, whoever's control it was under at the time, saw this situation and gathered together a small army. They walked over to Issen and knocked on the door, and with remarkably little fuss, brought the foretold doom to the king, killing him and ending his accidental kingship after about six months. With this, Enlil Bani becomes king and establishes the dynasty that will rule Issen throughout its waning days. I should note that there is an alternative version of this story in which Enlil Bani himself is the gardener and becomes the king's substitute with no later usurpation, just 23 years of benevolent rule. 
My own guess is that this is a later piece of propaganda, to paint him as legitimate instead of a usurper and to portray him as a man of the people. However, usurper or not, Enlil Bani does seem to have been fairly benevolent and well-regarded among his own people. He would, over his period of rule, correct a number of injustices, lowering tax and labor levy rates among at least some classes of citizens, and ending the practice of pasturing royal herds anywhere they wanted, which had led to royal sheep grazing on the crops of private citizens irritating the affected parties. He will sponsor notable medical texts which will see distribution all the way to the Assyrian Empire and be found in the library of Ashurbanipal some 1,200 years later. He also undertook a good amount of construction, from walls to temples and even a doghouse, though the context for the doghouse's construction is lost to us. And in this way, he would bring prosperity to Issam, though not much external military glory. His conquests were fairly limited, and sometime around Era Imiti's porridge misfortune, the city of Uruk would secede and never be brought back into the fold. And so would pass twenty or so quiet years in Isan. The same period will see four kings rise and fall in Larsa, beginning with a fellow named Nur-Adad. His predecessor, Sumuel, had ambitions of becoming the new hegemon of Sumer, which had cost the city dearly. And remember, Larsa hadn't been that wealthy, relatively speaking, before Gungunum's successful campaigns had given it a horde of looted treasures. Sumuel's adventures far in the north, and then his long campaign to dam the Euphrates River and redirect its flow, never brought back the sort of treasure that would allow these expeditions to pay for themselves, and the people of Larsa tired of being the ones paying. This discontent transformed into a popular movement which, according to Nur-Adad's own inscriptions, selected him from among the masses. Aside from this, Nur-Adad is a complete cipher before kingship. Even his name, an Akkadian rather than Amorite one, suggests he may have been a local, but some think he may have been an Amorite assuming an Akkadian name for propaganda purposes to distinguish himself from the previous dynasty. Whatever the case may be, Nur-Adad ended the foreign expeditions of his predecessor right away and was immediately faced with an ecological crisis that was starving the city. You see, not only was Sumuel's indirect siege of the Issan waterways expensive and time-consuming, it also fostered what may be history's first man-made ecological catastrophe. The last two kings spent quite a lot of time digging a complex net of canals all the way through the plains north of Larsa. And while this provided many benefits for transport and agriculture, the negative hydrological effects of each new channel being dug and rerouting water throughout the system were already being noted at that time, though ignored by the rulers themselves. This even created a strategic vulnerability for the city, as other forces could also recognize the utter lack of planning that had gone into the hastily dug system and were apparently diverting or filling in canals at strategic points to cause problems elsewhere in the region. 
Canals, both for transport and irrigation, have been a staple of Sumerian civilization since before the dawn of writing, but it was typically well-ordered and planned with mathematical precision. The last two kings, however, had apparently been in such a rush to contest with Isan, both economically and militarily, that a millennium of best practice seems to have gone out the window. Damming up the Euphrates River itself, at a point far upriver of the city of Larsa, was the last straw. The first years of Nuradad's rule are heavily focused on correcting this problem. In his fifth year, he is even forced to dredge the mighty Euphrates River itself, since the level had fallen so low and silt had become such a problem that boats couldn't sail from Larsa to Nippur. He sets firm borders, bringing an end to far-flung expeditions and instead establishing forts at locations around the mouths of the mad canal network that he inherited to protect it from the constant sabotage. He then went through and inspected all the canals that had been diverted and redug portions of the network, or more accurately, his scribes inspected and his labor levies redug, but of course he claims personal credit for all this. Somewhere to the north of Larsa, though still within near distance, a small city and large swath of agricultural hinterland rebelled in the middle of all of this. But the troops were able to put it down and publicly execute a large number of rebels, reminding people that it was okay for Nur Adad to rebel because he won, but it is never acceptable to rebel and fail to win. The only other recorded military activity we have from him is that further to the north, a city that was probably well outside the region he was interested in holding is seized by one of the other powers, possibly Issen, but we aren't completely certain of that. And for 19 years, Nur Adad focuses on his core territory, particularly his capital city. In previous rulers, we've seen a certain reluctance to proclaiming the title King of Larsa, preferring to mention other, more prestigious cities or titles, mostly Ur when they held that. But with Nur Adad, we see the capital returning to prominence in his proclamations and religious observances. Larsa's kingdom is basically just itself Ur. Eridu, and the agricultural hinterland around each, and this king is just fine with that, building and praying and allowing his city a generation to recover. Between Nur Adad and Isin's benevolent Enlil Bani, we have both major cities of the period being taken over by popular rebels who want nothing but an end to the constant warfare, and for once, the people get what they're asking for. But this isn't a peace like we saw at the beginning of the period under Issen's dominance. That earlier peace was enforced by Issen's economic strength and the military exhaustion of everyone else. This peace, however, is a peace of weakness. No one in Sumer has the capacity anymore to sustain this endless warfare, mostly because no one's winning enough battles to make campaigns pay for themselves anymore. This moment of peace has allowed the city of Uruk to break free uncontested. A fellow named Sin Kashid is an Amorite of the same tribe as rules in Babylon, though not part of the broad confederation currently headed by Sumula El. 
he seems to have struck out on his own and taken power in the small town of Durham, a former battleground between Issen and Larsa, and been awarded governorship over the city as long as he remained loyal to Issen. And for a while, he was loyal. But when the opportunity arose during the disturbance caused by Era Emiti's porridge misfortune, he gathered his nomads together, used the wealth of his city as well as promises of future wealth to entice mercenary nomads, and swept into the city of Uruk during the confusion, ousting the Issan-appointed governor and setting himself up as independent king of the mighty ancient city. Uruk, home of mighty Gilgamesh, had fallen a lot in fortune over the centuries, but it remained a major urban center despite all that. With an economic power base and a horde of nomadic Amorites at his disposal, he did exactly what you would expect from a warlord of the era. He engaged in peaceful diplomacy with his neighbors, and sponsored a revival of the Oedipus schools, churning out scribes that would produce new mathematical exercises and literary hymns to the gods. He would boast of an economy with very low prices for many key commodities, indicating an increased standard of living for the lower classes, and would rebuild many of the temples that had gone to seed over the intervening years. Wait, no. That isn't what you would expect from a warlord like him at all. We have only two fragmentary year names from his perhaps 30-year reign, and much is uncertain. But Sin Kashid appears in every respect to be the model of an enlightened monarch who we would respect nowadays. There is no indication that he ever attempted conquest outside of Uruk and maintained very close ties with the Amorites in Babylon to discourage attack from either of his neighbors. Like many rulers from nomadic backgrounds, he continued to proclaim his kingship over his Amorite tribe, but sat on the throne like a civilized king, even more civilized than many. He celebrated literacy and the gods, producing a tremendous number of inscriptions that survive to this day, many of them from a magnificent palace, a reconstruction of which I've placed in the show notes over at oldeststories.net. His successors will continue in this same manner for 20 more years after his death, and Uruk will continue to quietly maintain a high quality of life and high standard of literacy, or at least high for the period, while playing absolutely no part in our narrative until it comes time to reunify the land of Sumer once again. The peace in Larsa comes to an end when Nur-Adad's ambitious son Sin-Idinam begins to make a play for the throne before his father has managed to shuffle fully off the mortal coil. It appears to have been tradition for the various sons to be given minor cities to rule, and there may have been contention as to which son was meant to succeed Nur-Adad as the king begins to grow old. Sin-Idinam himself claims that there was a swell of popular support for him to become crown prince, but whether or not this was the case, he was clearly helping the process along. While the other brothers were perhaps content to gather resources and wait to fight it out over Nuradad's corpse, Sin-Idinam used the wealth of the tiny suburb that he'd been given control over, as well as his royal income, to begin patronizing temples of Ur and Eridu, in his own right and in honor of his father, 
This includes a remarkable statue and pair of inscriptions, which are in the form of letters, one to his father and one to the gods, praising and providing a biography for his still-living father. The precise means are unclear, but it appears that Sin Idinam either built up a power base among the temples and people and coerced his father, or flattered his father sufficiently with these offerings in his honor, or perhaps both. And, whatever the case, he was able to finagle his way into becoming co-regent for the final years of Nur-Adad's life, thus ensuring his own place when the time for succession came. Despite this extremely unusual succession, there are no other co-regencies of any sort in this period, and it may have been unprecedented in all of Sumerian history, Sin Idinam's seven years are a return to form for the era, possibly because events to the north, which had remained unsettled during this calm interlude, could no longer be ignored, or perhaps because the sort of man who schemes for control over a kingdom is just the sort of fellow who will continue to be ambitious once he secures that rule. After three years securing his rule properly, he attacks in quick succession Babylon, Malgium, and Eshnunna, then digs a grand canal from the southern Tigris to the massive canal web around the city of Larsa. In fact, all three of these lightning campaigns may have been about reviving the dream of a massive canal network for Larsa after it had lain fallow under his father. Babylon, only the year before Sin Idnam's attack, had been doing its own canal works and may have hydrologically disrupted the flow of water downstream into Larsa, prompting swift retribution. Additionally, we have a hymn from this period in which Sin Idnam claims to have been stricken in his dreams by a divine ailment and appears to cry out to the patron deity of Babylon, which he believes to be Asaluhi, a son of Ea, rather than Marduk at this point, begging the god of Babylon for healing, all of which indicates that this conflict extended into the magical and divine realms for the combatants as much as land-based warfare. Malgium and Eshnunna, meanwhile, were the most prominent cities on the Tigris River, and thus rivals that needed to be shut down before they had the opportunity to threaten work on the canal. Following these three lightning attacks, the northern powers did not bother to contest the beginning of the canal, though clearly there were diplomatic repercussions because Sin Idinam had to pivot towards Uruk and construct a wall in the city facing the southern ally of Babylon. That threat never ended up materializing, but it was a serious enough worry in the moment. With these victories and a grand canal started, Sin Idinam took up the title of King of Sumer and Akkad, along with the city of Nippur, and deified himself, announcing to the world that he intended for this only to be the start of a great and mighty campaign that would sweep through Mesopotamia and unify the world once again. In a surviving omen, he visited a major temple of Shamash the sun and sacrificed a sheep to the god in order to have the animal's liver read to tell the future. The divination priest returned with the news that the king would throw back any enemy who attacked him and would stand in triumph over that which is not his, meaning that he would also be taking treasure from any who were defeated. 
Heartened by this news, he began to prepare for the next series of campaigns, at which point the illness that seems to have started in his fourth year during the war with Babylon caught up to him, and Sin Idnam died. He was succeeded smoothly by either a younger brother or an adult son named Sin Irabam. It is hard to say much about Sin Irabam for two reasons. First, his name is an exceedingly common one, and we have documents that place Sin Irabams in Uruk and Kish at the same time, as well as numerous similarly named fellows for a hundred years afterwards. Secondly, he rules only for two years, in which time he did basically nothing, and then he died. We're going to pause the story of Larsa here, leaving the South at the cusp of a revolution, which will be saved for the next episode. After a time of relative peace, the short-lived Sin Idanam notwithstanding, Sumer has had a chance to recover for the next big thing, though one which will look rather different from the pointless conflict that has come before. And so, for the rest of the episode, we're going to head north, where the details are a bit thinner on the ground, but the action hasn't stopped during all of this. Right about the time as the start of the episode, the city of Eshnunam has begun to come out of a few dark decades. The leader of the city finally feels confident enough to adopt the title of king again, knowing that he doesn't have to worry about any greater threat taking regional hegemony. That king passes, and in 1862, Ipik Adad II takes the new kingship, ready to lead Eshnunam into regional power. Who was Ipik Adad I? No one important just a half-forgotten king from the dark decades when nothing much happened in this city. Actually, Ipikadad's reign is fairly dark as well, but going from the records of other states, especially the increasingly useful archives of the Syrian kingdom of Mari for this period, we can reconstruct a certain amount. He begins by conquering a number of small towns up and down the Diyala River, the branch of the Tigris which Eshnuna dominates. Either before or shortly after these small conquests, he runs up against an Amorite king named Aminum, who has taken some of the towns to the west. His first expeditionary force was beaten in open battle, retreating back to Eshnunna, but two years later Ipikadad returned and was able to overcome the Amorites, conquering a few more minor cities to the west. I am not going to burden you with the name of any of these towns because, for the most part, I can't find any of them on a map, and they never seem to come up again. Anyway, at some point he turns east to a mountain pass into the Zagros Mountains of modern Iran, which has been held for quite some time as the westernmost bastion of the Elamites in the area. We haven't heard much from the Elamites since they sacked Ur and dragged Ibisin off, naked and chained, never to be heard from again. Ishbi-era made a raid into the region, and 70 years later, Gungunum did the same, and we're led to believe, from their relative quiet in this time, that they were as disunified as Sumer was, and in pretty bad shape. Still, storming this mountain pass was an impressive feat, and shows us that this king, or at least his generals, were well-versed in Bronze Age siegecraft. From this mountain fastness, Ibigadad set his sights on Elam itself. But while the Elamites were weak in general, they were able to fend off this push into their core territory. 
Still, Eshnunna was able to keep the mountain pass, finally safeguarding them from the threat of invasion from the east. And so, with the Diala River Valley finally secure, Ipikadad takes up the title Shar Kishati, which translates roughly to King of the Universe, a title which will fall into much more impressive hands over the centuries, and also declares himself to be a god. From here, he takes a number of cities along the Tigris, as well as small towns not directly on the major rivers in the regions east of the Tigris, and comes border to border with Malgium lower down the Tigris River. Through diplomacy, he manages to avoid a major conflict there, and sends an expedition overland instead to the Euphrates, which this far north is quite a trek to get from one river to the other. He takes the town of Rapicum, but makes no other major gains. All this in a bit over 40 years. No word on conflict with Babylon or Manana, and no mention of Lars's little strike, and nothing about his domestic policy either, though by now we can reasonably guess that he spent his days ordering construction projects and patronizing temples like every other king of the era. Still, he leaves what had been a mid-rank city on a tributary of the Tigris as a fairly substantial state with control over considerable amounts of territory, though being this far north each square mile is rather less productive than it is down in Sumer. When Eshnunna changes kings, it will also be changing its center of attention, from being the northernmost southern Mesopotamian city to the southernmost upper Mesopotamian city. And so we won't be seeing Eshnunna again until we get to the series of episodes focused on what's going on in Assyria around this time. And so, the last major power that we have to bring up for the next episode is the city of Babylon. When we left it, it was under the rule of Sumula-el, and he has another decade or so to go. When we pick up our story, Babylon has made some diplomatic overtures with Era Emiti, and the two of them go in together to finally crush the city of Kazalu, which has been the main civilized threat in the West for a number of decades now. Kazalu will be a vassal city of Babylon for the rest of history, eventually being fully annexed into the growing state. Sumula-el's final years were focused on domestic and religious responsibilities, as well as the occasional military conflict. He died in 1847, a much more settled and civilized man than he had been when he appeared on the stage 50 years previously. He passes on to his son an empire consisting of the most important parts of what was once called the Akkadian heartland, and his capital of Babylon, while not yet a great city, has all the makings of a city which will become great soon enough. From 1847 to 1812, these promising beginnings go absolutely nowhere. Under first King Sabium, then Apil Sin, the first ruling for about 15 years, the second for about 20. They each maintained the territory, more or less, as they inherited, and they fought minor battles against minor foes. They built up the temples, walls, and irrigation of the cities of the region, both in Babylon and its subject cities, and finally got so sick of dealing with Kazalu that they finally dismantled the city's walls, making it unable to defend itself if it ever tried to revolt again. 
Still, though it is a relatively passive time, the Amorite tribes do flex their military might from time to time, and neither king manages to embarrass himself, though each is fairly unknown in history. The state is at least as large and prestigious as Larsa or Eshnunna at this time, and probably larger than Isin, Uruk, and Malgium, and the fading Manana dynasty, who is quietly vanishing from history after very poorly recorded losses to Babylon, Eshnunna, and possibly the Assyrians in the north. It is, in fact, regarded as so secure at this point that the king of Ekatalam flees there when Eshnunna takes his city, and apparently the reputation of Babylon's military might is enough to keep Ipekadad from contesting the issue. With next week, we will move the clock forward into a new moment in history. Babylon will see its first king, since up to this point the slowly civilizing Amorite rulers don't seem to have considered it enough of a city to warrant claiming kingship over, and were in any case still attached to their tribal structures. Meaning that next episode, we will see a Babylon that is rich enough and rulers that are civilized enough to finally join the city-state game and begin playing the empire game in earnest. At the same time in Larsa, we will see the city mismanaged to an incredible degree, until finally arises a pair of brothers who will become the first great empire builders since the death of King Shulgi some 250 years ago. So join me next time as we finally end this terribly complicated multipolar era and start getting back into linear narratives of conquering heroism. Thank you for listening.